You know, I, I was thinking a lot after last Sunday. Uh, last Sunday, we talked about suffering uh, in the life of Joseph. And I, I even remember saying up here before a time of prayer, something like, uh, sometimes it seems like the world is on fire. <laughs> and, uh, and so we were, we were praying in light of all of the, the heavy stuff around us. And that hasn't changed in a week at all, has it? In fact, this past week has been full of of more bad news. We've talked about already Afghanistan. Certainly, uh, the COVID uh, news is, is not good either. Things seem to be uh, rising. There's more mitigations that have gone into effect. It just feels like we're, we're being pulled back into all of that. I know for some of you, uh, you've dealt with some personal or family health crises in the last week since we were last gathered together, uh, and even some deaths near to our church family this week. So all of that just sort of piling on again to a long stretch, a long stretch of bad and scary news all across our world. So I was thinking this week, boy, uh, we need to, to, to yes, be uh, somber and we need to be reflective and we need to, to, to cry out in times like that and, and we need to suffer well, but we also need to be reminded of reasons to be thankful. We need to be reminded of reasons why we can have praise on our lips. So what shall we talk about today? Well, I wanted to do Psalm 100, and I've, I've titled the message this morning, uh, uh, The Reasons for Giving Thanks, because we need to talk about the goodness of God. We need to, uh, to talk about uh, 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 the goodness of God, especially, I think, in the midst of difficulty. We need to recognize that the scriptures often instruct us to be thankful and to give praise, especially in the midst of difficulty. And why is that? Well, because we were made for God. And when everything around us in the world begins to look bleak, we need to be reminded it's time to look up. It's time to look up. And so it seemed appropriate this week to select a psalm suitable for directing our eyes in that upward direction. And when we look at the opening line of Psalm 100, which I'll invite you to turn to if you haven't already picked that up and, and turned there, it certainly fits the, the bill. It reads as a headline, a psalm for giving thanks. It's actually the only psalm that really does that. It's not the only psalm that gives thanks, but it's, it's the one that carries this headline, and it's become a... a, a, a a favorite psalm of the church throughout the ages for this very reason. Logan read it for us earlier. I want to read it again. And I want you to notice not only what's being said, but even the structure of this psalm as I read it. See if you can pick out what's happening structurally here. The psalmist says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all of the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness and come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving. Enter His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love 
endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. It's a short psalm. You'll notice that the psalm is divided into four stanzas. And you might have noticed, if you, if you were kind of thinking about what the structure of this psalm is, that these four stanzas, stanzas fall into two different categories. The first and the third stanzas are invitations to praise God, right? To enter into his presence and his courts, to sing, to praise, to be thankful. And then the other two stanzas, the second and the fourth, give reasons for thanksgiving and praise to God. Now, before we look at that in more detail this morning, I want to ask you this. Is it hard for you to give thanks? Is that something that you, if you think about it, you, you, you may note in your life that it's, it's not a frequent thing, right? Just being thankful, stopping, praising God. In the midst of difficult circumstances, in the midst of bad news, does it, does it seem far away from you to give thanks in times like that, to give praise to God. I think it is for a lot of us. I I think that can be true for me, too. That's why I'm asking you. I I notice that at times. It's like giving thanks, just pausing and and praising God in the midst of of all that's going on can be, it can be a, a challenge. It could be, it feels like an effort for me at times. And the thing that convicts me about that and makes me sad about that is is the fact that I know that there are other things in my life that are much easier and more frequent uh, in their occurrence when it comes to just being thankful or giving praise. Lots of different things. And and, and I think that can be true for you too. When, When something that you value is in front of you, something that you value is going well, it can be really easy to give thanks and to give praise. I, I've, I've heard several uh, new relationships, romantic relationships budding up uh, amongst our, our little group here over the last few weeks. And you know what happens when, when I hear those stories? I hear jubilant uh, retellings of what's happening, right? Thankfulness. I hear praise. It's easy to do that with the things that we value. And that again, when we think about giving thanks and praise to God, uh, can be convicting because maybe we're saying, I don't know if I feel like giving praise and thanks to God right now. And if you find that that's true for you, maybe you're a little cool to that idea, perhaps then what we need this morning, and certainly what we need, is a glimpse of the supreme value of God. We need to see just how supremely valuable our God is. Here's the thing. Praise and thanksgiving doesn't usually start with what you feel. It starts with what you know. What we know begets what we feel. And the psalmist here invites us to praise and thank God by reminding us what we can know about him what we can know about him. And I want to give you three knowable reasons from this psalm for praising and thanking God this morning. And here's the first one. The first one is we can know the nature of God. Another way to put that, we can know what our God is like. 
And we can know that because he's revealed himself to us. Look at verse 3 again, the beginning of verse 3. The psalmist says, know this. Know that the Lord, he is God. The first thing that we're to know about God is that he's actually knowable. He has a name and he has a nature. The psalmist lists that here, and in the English, it may be hard for us to pick that up. His name translated in our English Bibles is the Lord, right? You see that throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms. You'll see the Lord often mentioned, and you might notice that in many of your Bibles, the Lord, all of the the letters are capitalized there. It's a translation of what's in the original Hebrew, though, of something that doesn't have this sort of... uh, a general sense to it, like the word Lord can have in our English uh, language. It's, it's, it's actually translated what's written there as Yahweh or Jehovah, depending on the use. So when you see the Lord and it's capitalized in your Old Testament Bible, know that the original writer was saying his name, Yahweh, is our God. Jehovah is our God. So he's not just saying something general like God is God. He's saying something specific like the God of the Hebrews, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David, this God is the one true God. It is this God who is the maker of the heavens and the earth. It is this God who is the ruler over all of creation. It is he who made us, as it says there at the latter half of verse 3. There's many things that can be said from this short sentence, and we could actually spend a long time unpacking them, but I want to just pull out a few significant highlights. The first one is that this God of ours, who has a name, is the one true God, meaning there are no rival powers to this God. There are no gods above this God. There are no gods beside this God. There are no other gods at all. He is the one true God. And as this one true God, he is the creator of all, meaning he's also in control of everything. Because he has made everything, everything is subject to him and his power. Nothing, in other words, can happen outside of the power and the will of this God who has a name, our God. And this is the God who made us. And in the ESV, which we're reading out of, it it actually omits what other translations include, like the King James or the New American Standard. There it says, he has made us and not we ourselves. We didn't make ourselves. We haven't done anything to, 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 to give ourselves status, certainly to give ourselves existence. It is God and God alone who has made us what we are, and who we are. It's not my own power. It's not my own achievement. It is strictly his grace and his blessing. He is the provider, this one God. And because he has made us and not we ourselves, then again, we belong to him. And that is a statement of both authority. We belong to him. He is in control of all things, including us, But it is more than a statement of authority. It's a statement of stewardship and protection. 
We belong to him. He cares for us. He protects us. He's interested in us. He has an ownership stake in us that goes beyond just our maker, but our caregiver, our steward, and our protector. So get this, from this little sentence, what the psalmist is communicating to us is that this one true God who made you, he's knowable. He's knowable. He has revealed himself to us, not just by his nature, but also by his name. And the fact that our God is knowable is something that I, I wonder if, if that sometimes and somehow gets lost on us. Do you know that this is what separates our understanding of God from every other major religion in the world? You know, in, in, in Islam, God is all-powerful. God is a creator, but he's far from knowable. He's not near to his people. He, he is to be feared. He's to be obeyed. He's to be loved out of a sense of obligation, but there's no sense of knowability in relationship with Allah. The Christian God, this one true God, has revealed himself to us as more, far more than just the all-knowing, all-powerful one. He's the all near one who wants to be known, who wants to be in relationship with us. He invites us into a relationship with him, and he invites us into his presence. And he does that for our joy. Look back at verse 2. Serve the Lord, Yahweh, this knowable God. Serve him with gladness. Come into his presence but don't just come into his presence, sing there, rejoice there, right? His presence is our joy. Give thanks and make a joyful noise to the noble God because you know him and you know his nature and you know his name. That's the first thing. The second thing we can be thankful for, I'll call the gospel of God. So we started with the nature of God, what God is like. Secondly, the gospel of God. If we read the second sentence of this stanza, we are his, then we can say that it doesn't just mean that the world belongs to him generally, but rather for the church, it means that we have a special relationship with him. We have a unique position as those who belong to him in a covenant relationship, a unique status. And that reading is supported by the following half of the sentence. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. I call this the gospel of God because it is the good news that we are his people, that we belong to him, that he is our shepherd. It's that good news that's ultimately knowable to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here the psalmist is thinking specifically of the covenant relationship between God and Israel. Yet as Christians who read this backwards through the lens of the New Testament, we know that we're pointed to the ultimate covenant. The ultimate belonging to God that is secured by the blood of Jesus. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 20, he says, you are not your own. In other words, you belong to him, 
because you were bought with a price. That's why we are his people. That's why we are the sheep of his pasture. He has purchased us for himself. We belong to him because we were ransomed by the death of our Savior. And we also know that this special covenant relationship is not just the source then for our singing and our praise, but it's the source of the eternal praises of the angelic beings in heaven. If you look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, it says this. It says this of the angels. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, Lord, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's the source of our joy, is knowing this unique and special relationship that comes through the blood of Christ. We don't just belong to God because he made us. We belong to him because he saved us. And his saving care, again, is intimate care. It's involved care. It's ongoing care. It's the tender care of a shepherd who cares for his flock. Verse 3, again, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. This is a distinguishing grace that sets us apart as precious children of God whom he will shelter and protect under the mighty reach of his unrivaled staff so that we will remain safe and protected, unimpaired until the very end. The psalmist wants us, church, to know this. Know this. That's how he starts. Know it. And we can be confident of this truth because we can look to Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, and see the purest revelation of God's care for his own. Ezekiel 34 says this. God says this there. He says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. And how does God accomplish this? Jesus tells us in John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. That's who I am. I am the one who will do this for my people. And the good shepherd, he says, lays down his life for the sheep. That's how he does it. You know, the gospel of God is really amazing when you consider it in light of the nature of God. Right? The nature of God. We have this all-powerful, perfect, and holy God who stands above everything, and yet this one has come down to us. He's condescended to us. He sends his own son that he might take our sins upon himself, that he might offer up his perfect, holy, righteous, sinless life in order that our guilt might be forgiven by his perfect sacrifice. And then he raises from the dead in glorious resurrection so that we can know, we can be confident for certain that he has the power to conquer sin and death, that it's a reality. We are his church. 
You belong to him. And we can give thanks for that. Regardless of what's going on around us, regardless of what's going on in our lives, we can come back to that truth. You belong to him and give thanks and give praise and rejoice because of the gospel of God. So the psalmist wants us to know God's nature. He wants us to know this good news about our belonging to him through Christ. And finally, we can give thanks and rejoice because of the love of God. That's how he ends up here. Look at verse 4. Again, enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Why? For the Lord is good, and his steadfast love endures forever, his faithfulness to all generations. The Lord is good. His love endures forever. Look up for a second. Do you believe that? Do you always believe that? Are there ever times when you doubt Not that God is loving, not necessarily that God is good, but that he loves me, that he's good to me. Do you doubt that sometimes? I wonder if this might be the most needed pastoral reminder for many of us this morning. The psalmist here invites us to give thanks to God, to give praise to God, to bless his name. In other words, to find him supremely valuable because he's good and because his love endures forever, not just generally, but for you. I think this is the truth that's often hardest for Christians to believe. Again, we, we, it's not that we wouldn't say, I believe God is good or that he's loving. It's just, does that faithfulness, is, it, is, it, is that flow of his love, is it, is it ongoing at all times? Again, for me, why is it hard for me to believe that? Because I know that in my life, I fail him. So isn't it logical, isn't it reasonable to think that his love will fail me? Not because God is a failure, but because I don't deserve it. Doesn't that seem reasonable, right? Why would God love me when I don't love him? Or I don't love him well enough, or often enough, or consistently enough? I would venture to bet that if you're having a hard time being thankful and praising God this morning, it's probably because you sincerely wonder, has God's love towards me wavered a little bit? So here's my sincere hope along with the psalmist this morning. It's to encourage you. There's deep significance here in the psalm reminding us first of his nature And secondly, of his gospel care in order to help us comprehend what he says lastly about God 
his steadfast love. Remember his nature. Know that the Lord, he is God. He is God. He is the all-powerful, unrivaled, one true God that is knowable because he's revealed himself to us. What else has he revealed to us about himself? Do you know that he's perfect? He's perfect. Psalm 18, among many others, tells us so. It says, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. He's perfect. Because God is perfect, because that's his nature, he can't be added to and he can't be taken away from. He can't be diminished in any way. If he was diminished in any way, he would cease to be perfect. And if he was added to in any way, it would mean that he was not yet perfect. But the psalmist leaves no room for this possibility. He just says, know that the Lord, he is God. He is this supreme, perfect, almighty one. So if we know that God is perfect, do you also know that God is love? 1 John 4, 16 tells us so, right? God is love. It doesn't say God has love. It doesn't say that, that love is just sort of a piece of a puzzle that makes up who God is. God doesn't consist of parts. He's perfect. If God consisted of parts, he would be dependent on those parts for his being. But a perfect being is not dependent on anyone or anything. So God is love doesn't mean he has love. He is love. He's the source of love. He's the definition of love. He's the fullness of love. And he can't be anything less than perfect in love. His love can't change. Do you hear that? Remember I just asked you a couple minutes ago, do you think sometimes God's love for you wavers? God's love for you goes up or down depending on your worthiness. No, he's perfect in love. He can't change. Which means his love can't change. Numbers 23, God is not man that he should lie. He's not the son of the man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? James 1, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation. There is no shadow due to change. The nature of God makes it impossible for him to love you less. And he couldn't love you more. His steadfast love, is, as it says here in this psalm, endures forever. And again, it's the gospel of God that provides us with assurance that even though we can change, even though we can love less, even though we can diminish, it cannot affect the way God sees us because God sees us in Christ. 
He sees us in his son who is likewise perfect. So if you feel at all tempted to believe this morning that God's wavered in any way towards you, I can assure you it's not because God has moved. It's just because you have. It's just because you have. But God is right there loving you as always. He loves us perfectly and he wants you to know it. He wants you to know it. He wants you to believe that. Can you believe that this morning? I hope you can say right now with full confidence, yes, I can believe it because it's true. It's true. So for this week, as you leave from here and, you know, some of you are starting back into school. Some of you are stepping back into, you know, uh, office situations that are feeling really tentative right now. Or maybe you've just been told, well, you're not going back anytime soon, right? And you watch the news and, and everything seems to be, again, on fire around us. The hurricane's hitting, the, 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 the Middle East is falling apart, Afghanistan is in shambles, and COVID is ravaging. I mean, you're just surrounded by all this, ugh. not to mention your own personal struggles and relationships and health and all the many trials. You're going to leave this room and step back into the same life that you had when you came in. But I hope you don't leave with the same knowledge or conviction that you had when you came in. Because the word of God is encouraging us to know something that maybe we'd forgotten before this morning. Our God is God. Our God is a possessor of us as his people. We are his precious possession. We belong to him. And he loves us in a way that cannot and will not change. So... He invites you into his presence with that knowledge to rejoice, to be thankful, to sing. This is who we are as the people of God because that's who he is. So I want to ask you to stand. And I want to invite our worship leaders back up here. And as our closing prayer, let's just be obedient to the word of God. Let's come into his presence and sing.